For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen indeed. On the 18th of June, 1940, Winston Churchill, who had been Prime Minister of the United Kingdom for only a month or so at that time, made a famous speech in Parliament which contained these words. What General Weygand called the Battle of France is over. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. But if we fail then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of a perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. As a result of the convictions that Churchill set out in that famous speech, he poured huge resources into the air war. In the next 12 months after Churchill made that speech, the RAF lost 1,250 aircraft and sustained 1,420 fatalities. Why? Because, as Churchill understood, air superiority was strategic. The Battle of Britain was a battle that just had to be won, whatever the cost. And it's no different, in a way, for the Christian church in every age. Some things are just strategic. They are things that matter more than other things. They are things that resources need to be poured into because if we fail at those things but succeed at all the other things, we will not have succeeded at all. And so we need to know what is strategic. And a strategy is designed to identify what is strategic and then plan to deliver on those things above all other things. And that's why right now as a, as a congregation, 
uh, up uh, on the Carn Money Road and to a degree in terms of our relationship with this church that's been planted out of our church, we are considering right now what it is that is strategic for us to be and to do for the next four or five years. And, and up on the Carn Money Road, we had planned to do this over four Sundays, whether we'll even be worshiping next Sunday or not, I don't know. But today is our third Sunday up there looking at, at the questions around the strategy that Rick Hill and a team that he put together has designed and come up with. And there was some input from Dave and from some of the team here in Central into that strategy. And, and for four weeks up on the Carn Money Road, we've been talking about that and telling everybody what it is. And next Sunday, there will be available, we make sure copies of it are available here too, um, the actual strategy and vision itself and the document that we have produced will be published and available next Sunday. We'll make sure you get a chance to see it as well. And, and we're doing that so that we can decide what is most strategic for us for the next four or five years and to make sure that even if we don't do any other things, that we definitely do these strategic things. But before you come to look at the details of a strategy, there's an obvious question you can ask, and it's the question, why? Why is this vision and strategy so important that we set aside a group of people under Rick's leadership and that uh, we task them with the job of seeking the Lord's will about this, doing the research, talking to those who currently serve, pray and brainstorm a way forward and then write a plan and invite us all to commit to it. Why would we do that work? Well, I want to consider that question this morning. I want to suggest that every church, including this church, requires to be strategic for three reasons. The first one is this. We need a strategy and a vision because, first of all, there is a world to save there is a world to save. Of all the creatures God made, only one developed a sophisticated society, and that was human beings. We are drawn together in a network of relationships which were designed to aid human flourishing. By being in society, ideas could be shared, cooperation could be encouraged, the vulnerable could be protected, and the benefits would be universal. But something went very badly wrong with human society, so badly wrong that it shook the creator to the core. We read in Genesis 6, it says, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. God looked at what had happened to human society and it, it, it touched him to the core of his being. But what he did next was totally counterintuitive because we read in John chapter three, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. What God did was totally counterintuitive. This insight in John three seventeen points out two key things. The first one is this, what God didn't do he didn't condemn the world. 
which is what you might have expected him to do if the world had gone completely off track, if everything was not the way God had intended it, if the very thing God had established to bless and cause human flourishing was now doing the opposite, you might have expected him to condemn it. It isn't what he does. The heart of God for human beings and human society, you can see in the microcosm of what happened when Jesus met the woman taken in adultery in John's gospel. You'll probably know the story. This woman taken from the act of adultery was hauled in before Jesus by a group of men and Jesus is confronted with the situation. And let's face it, what was there to be said? Her sin was obvious, her actions were reprehensible, her fate was predictable. But after her accusers had retreated, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is a truly stunning reaction on Jesus' part and not what you might have expected. He did not condemn the woman. He did not pronounce judgment upon her. He set her free from her lifestyle and gave her the opportunity to walk away to a different life altogether. I don't know about you, but when I watch those television adverts that are on all the time now about paramilitaries and the things that they do in Northern Ireland society, I have one universal reaction every time I see it. I look at it and I think, what a bunch of scumbags. It's my immediate reaction. Every time I see it, what a bunch of scumbags. But if I were instead to react like my Savior, how I would react is I would have an aching heart trying to figure out how I could reach them and save them. Because that's what God did. He did not react the way you might have expected him to react. Rather, he comes in love. And that's the second point. If we follow Christ, our role is not to condemn the world. The world does not need to hear our condemnation. But to do what God does. And what did God do? God saved the world, not just individuals, however comforting that may be. We are so pleased, grateful, worship God so much for the fact that he saved us, that there is an opportunity to have dealt with all that is wrong in our lives, to be clean, to be set free, to be able to live a different kind of life than we would otherwise have lived if it hadn't have been for Jesus and what he did. There is no end to the praise and gratitude that we want to express to God for that. But that isn't all that the Lord is doing. He is not just saving us as individuals. Rather, he is also in the process of saving human society as well so that he may dwell among us at the last. We are not going up to heaven. Heaven is coming down to us. God is going to live among us. And so he is aiming not just to redeem you and me, but to redeem human society itself, the world, as the New Testament calls it. Paul, out of his own experience, puts what God is doing like this in 1 Timothy 1. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
of whom I am the worst. God did not do what we might have expected him to do. And he therefore mandates us not to do what people expect us to do. And to achieve a goal like that, you need a strategy. You need a plan. You need a vision. You need to have some shape on, the, on your own life and on the life of this fellowship to which you belong if we are going to be a fellowship of people who join with God in saving the world. When Hudson Taylor went to China as a missionary, what took him to China was the huge need in that country because of its size and the number of people who lived there and because of their complete ignorance when it came to the truth of the Lord Jesus and the scriptures and all the rest of it. The massive need was what drove Taylor on. One of Taylor's successors in the leadership of what was originally the China Inland Mission, now the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, one of his successors wrote a hymn. And in one of the verses of those hymn, of that hymn, he expresses the motivation that drove Taylor. Here's what the verse says. Where other lords beside thee hold their unhindered sway, where forces that defied thee, defy thee still today, with none to heed their crying for love and light, unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. Taylor used to weep every day before he would go to bed at night in his prayers, he would weep before God for the Chinese who had died on that particular day without the opportunity to turn to Christ. And it was that motivation that took him to China, but it also led him to adopt a revolutionary concept that no one had done before. When Taylor got to China, he discovered that most Christian mission in China was situated in, in the eastern coast, on the eastern seaboard of China, in, in the compounds where Western uh, business was to be situated and where Western armies were available to protect those compounds. And that's where the missionaries were. Taylor decided that he could not stay there. And he developed a revolutionary idea and his revolutionary idea took him out of those western compounds and away from the eastern seaboard altogether into the interior of China and into Chinese dress and clothes and the adoption of a Chinese way of life. And that's what he did. It's why his mission was called the China Inland Mission. The clue is in the title. He moved inland. He lived as if he were Chinese. And there is no doubt that that strategy to a large degree explains the church that exists in China today. It was because he went inland and because he lived as Chinese rather than Western that Chinese people in such large numbers adopted Christian faith to the point where the Chinese church is an incredible church today. It was that strategic decision about the clothes he wear, he wore and the place where he lived and the lifestyle that he adopted. That was one of the key reasons that China is being won for Christ. We have a world to save. And we cannot save the world without a strategy. 
we need to figure out how we do that in this day and generation, in the center of the city of Belfast. We need a strategy. But also we need a strategy, not only because we have a world to save, but because secondly, there is an enemy to defeat. See, it's bad enough that we have to save people who by and large are oblivious to the fact that they need to be saved at all because most people don't think of it in those terms. And so we're nearly starting from a step back trying to help the world come to see that it needs something more than what it currently has. But on top of that, there is a compounding problem. And the compounding problem is that there is someone who is going to do everything in his power to prevent us from succeeding. Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're involved in a war, and in a war, you need to know who your enemy is. Because one of the problems is that in the fog of war, it is easy to target the wrong enemy. We often hear about the fact that in struggles, in human struggles throughout the world, soldiers end up killing people from their own side because in the fog of battle, they mistake them for the enemy. And in the struggle we are involved in, we need to be clear about who the enemy is. People are the least of our worries. Let me say it again. People are the least of our worries. However obstructive or obnoxious or hostile they may be to us, people are not our enemies. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. Every believer, every Christian church in every land has the same enemy, Peter says, and that enemy is not people, it is the devil. And Peter says to us, therefore, use your head, be strategic. He says, be alert and of sober mind. He's saying, think about this. Realize who your enemy is and plan to target your enemy. Makes a massive difference how you behave if you get the wrong enemy. Whenever Team Sky was formed in 2009, Team Sky had one key objective. And the one key objective that they had was to win and to win clean. Because what they understood was that their enemy was not the drug takers on other teams, but the drugs themselves. And this was a totally different strategy from the strategy of Lance Armstrong, who was so successful in cycling because Lance's strategy was that his enemy was the drug takers on the other team. So what he did was figured out a way to take the drugs better than they did so that he could beat them. And he was hugely successful at it for seven years. His enemy was the drug takers on the other teams. Team Sky's enemy was the drugs. So Dave Brailsford, who was the manager of that team and still is the manager of the team today, it's been renamed now as Team Ineos, but he was the manager of that team and he developed a strategy which guided what they did. It was, it's now become famous. It was a strategy of marginal gains. Brailsford knew that if you could fit a different set of wheels 
that maybe give you a couple of seconds advantage over somebody else over 180 kilometers and, and you could have a different set of gears that were lighter, maybe give you half a second and you had a different kind of um, drink in the bottle for the rider that gave you another half a second. And, and if you could do a number of these really small things over 180 kilometers, that gives you enough of an advantage to win the Tour de France. Strategy was to target the drugs, not the drug takers, and therefore develop something that could allow you to win clean. Jesus made sure he had the right target in his sights and that he hit that target. Paul says in Colossians 2, he forgave us all our sins, Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus didn't march on Rome because Rome was not his enemy. Jesus went to a cross because only on a cross could he defeat the real enemy of our race. Jesus had the real enemy in his sights. We need a strategy because we have an enemy to defeat. And we will almost certainly get that wrong if we don't have the right enemy in view and sit down and figure out together how by God's help and guidance we can aim at that enemy as our chief target. Lastly, we need a strategy because there is a prize to win. There is a prize to win. One prize, not many. If you have ever been on an athletics team, I, a long time ago, used to be on our school athletics team and if you've ever been on an athletics team, you will know that in an athletics team, there are many disciplines, okay? And there, there are track disciplines and field disciplines and so on. Uh, many, many disciplines. But there is only really one prize. Individuals may win events, but what they are doing is accumulating points for the team. And it is the team, ultimately, that wins the prize rather than the individuals. And uh, I used to run five and 10,000 meters at school. Um, and uh, I may have told you this story before, but on one notable occasion, I had to run in a 10,000 meter race, okay? And uh, I had to run against the Northern Ireland cross country champion, who was also uh, a pupil at my school. And I had to run against the Northern Ireland 10,000 meter champion. And there were the two of them and me and nobody else in the race. During the course of the 10,000 meter race, I also discovered that a pair of spike, spike running shoes I had borrowed from a friend had one of the spikes coming up through the sole of the shoe. So it was a fairly harrowing experience, humiliating experience. I was lapped twice, I think, by both the other runners. All right, but here's the thing. I finished third. <laughs> and you won points for your team by finishing third. And my points, because the 10,000 meter race was the last race of the day, my points for coming in third in that race helped my school win that day. Because there was only one prize. If there'd been a whole load of prizes, I'd have won nothing. But there was only one prize. And my points gained from being third 
enabled my team to win the prize. There is only one prize. And Paul talks about that. He says in Philippians 3, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. And Paul has an athletic picture in mind here. He's thinking about athletes competing in an athletic competition for one prize. And he develops that metaphor, that picture, elsewhere. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, run in such a way as to get the prize. Now, very few people will be able to run like that with a big, broad smile on your face in a 100-meter dash, okay? But that's an exceptional guy there. But we have to learn how to run so as to win the prize. And for Paul, that meant one thing, but it was not what he might have expected or actually what Paul might even have wanted in one verse, Paul says about his ministry, he says, to me, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, it has to be said from what we know about Paul that the state of the Gentiles was not the thing that was uppermost in his mind. In his letter to the Romans, he pours out his heart to God for his own people, the Jewish people, he says this in Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So where was Paul's heart? Paul's heart was for his own people. He would have done anything. He said, if I could have saved my people, by Christ cutting me out of his purposes and damning me to hell, I would have said yes to that. That was where his heart was. But Paul realized that if the prize, the one and only prize, was to be won, he had to throw himself into the Gentile work because that was the strategy. The world could not be saved by simply saving the people of his own race. The world could only be saved if somehow or another the message got to the Gentile world. And you and I are here today and this church exists today because Paul accepted that strategy and threw himself into the Gentile work and made it to Europe with the message of the gospel. And so you and me are here today because he accepted the strategy and he gave his life to fulfill it, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. There is only one price. There is only one price. The price giving at the end of time will not be like your school price given, okay? Not that I paid much attention to school prize given when I was at school because I never won a prize. Well, I actually think I, I think I won one prize in the last year, but it was a book I didn't even want to read. Um, and so I, I didn't really pay an awful lot of attention uh, at school prize givens. My involvement in school prize givens was either to be in the choir or as a soloist to sing the school song. When Loyal James in Ulster first established his plantation... The noble planters for their sons soon craved an education. And so in 1617, our forebears needs discerning. Matthias Springham, armiger, I don't know what an armiger is, established his foundation. 
be it latitude or longitude, the poles or the equator, you'll always find a man who boasts that foils his alma mater. I can still remember it after all those years, okay? There's two more verses which I won't bore you with. But my only involvement in prize giving was to sing that terrible song. However, I used to go to prize givings at BRA when my children were there, and I was much more interested in them because some of the members of my family actually managed to win prizes. And so I'm looking down the list of prizes at BRA, and there's a lot of prizes, okay, including, I may say, the J.C. Pickin bat. Cricket bat, all right? I have no idea who J.C. Pickin was, but obviously he was some significant cricketer that went to BRA. Man, I need to be careful about it because when I talked about this in Carn Money a few Sundays ago, there was in church somebody who won the J.C. Pickin bat, okay? So all these different prizes, you know? When we get to the final prize giving, there will be only one prize. There will not be the Apostle Paul Award for the most most innovative church. There will not be the John Calvin Award for the most sound denomination. There will be no prizes like that. There will just be one prize. One hymn writer put it like this, life with its path before us lies. Christ is the way and Christ the prize. One prize, only one prize. And every single one of us, whoever we are, in this church, up on the Carnmoney Road, in every other assembly of God's people on the planet this day, and in all the generations of the Christian church to this moment, every single one of us are helping the church to compete for that one prize. Lots of different disciplines, lots of different nationalities, lots of different cultures and backgrounds and abilities and life experiences, but every single one of us trying to help the church to win that one prize. We need a strategy to do that. We need to figure out what Central's part in winning that one prize actually is. Sandy Miller loves to tell the story of how in the early days in, um, in HTB, uh, when HTB was a small London congregation with a handful of elderly people worshipping in it. He was sitting up at the front of the church one Sunday and during the early part of the worship he watched a young man in his early 20s walk through the back door of the church, come in, have a look around, turn on his heel and walk out again. He was devastated. And, and he said he prayed to God at that moment and he made a commitment to God in that moment. He said, Lord, if you will help me, I will do whatever I have to do in this place to ensure that the next 20-something that walks through that back door of the church stays. And so he started to change how they functioned as a church, how they worshiped God, began to change things. And he got a phone call one day of the type that ministers often get from a member of the congregation saying, Vicar, I would like to meet with you to discuss the changes that are taking place. And Sandy said when he got the phone call, he was a bit taken aback actually because he had made so few changes. And if the phone caller had known the changes he intended to make further down the road, they would have probably been even more concerned than they were at this point in time. However, he arranged to see this man. He he went to his house, a very well-to-do, we're talking nice part of London here, well-to-do house. He sat down with the best china and a very nice cup of tea with some scones, only they would call them scones, wouldn't they? But anyway, they had a really nice cup of tea together. And then... This man said to Sandy, well now, Vicar, explain to me 
why are, why are we making all these changes? And Sandy told him the story of the young man coming into the back of the church. And then he said to this man, he said to him, can you tell me when you last saw anyone in their 20s in the worship of this congregation? The man thought for a moment or two. And then he looked at Sandy and he said, so, he said, tell me what we need to do. This man was a retired army officer. He had been used all his life working in a a calling which requires strategic decision making. Costly decisions are often made that are to the disadvantage of the people who make them, but those costly decisions need to be made so that a victory can be won. This man understood that. And although he knew that what was coming down the track at him were things he didn't want to do, songs he didn't want to sing, and all sorts of developments in church that he didn't want personally to happen, he understood that it was important to be strategic. And having had a strategy explained to him, he was ready to sign up to it. Tell me, vicar, what we need to do. If we are to save the world and defeat the enemy and win the prize, then we need to be strategic. We need to figure out what it is that God wants Central to do and to be right now. And then, once we figure that out, we need to sign up for that 100%. The title of our new vision and strategy is All In. Once we know what God wants, We need to be all in.